Hi, and welcome back to The Big Questions. We're back with another episode in our Central Bankers series. This time, IAF President and CEO Tim Adams is speaking with Managing Director of the Monetary Authority of Singapore, Ravi Menon. The two have a jam-packed conversation, so why don't we get right to it? Tim, over to you. Over the past few weeks, we've reached out to some of the leading central bank chiefs around the world to get a sense from them on their policy response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We have with us tonight Robbie Menon, the Managing Director of the Monetary Authority of Singapore, who's not only a friend, but one of the most recognizable thought leaders of central banking and finance in the 21st century. And that's a lofty title I give you, but I can't think of anyone else who's been really more forward-leaning and thoughtful about what central banking and finance and banking is going to be like, not only today, but over the next several decades. So, Mr. Managing Director, if I may call you Ravi, we're really happy to have you here on your morning and my evening, and we appreciate you taking the time with us. Well, good evening, Tim. And uh, oh, yes, please call me Ravi as you always do. Good to hear you and good to connect and all the best to everyone at IIF. Thanks very much for doing this. Well, just on the theme that I kicked off with, if you could just give us your thoughts about how you see the impact of the pandemic on Singapore and the region, and then what has the MAS been doing with respect to responding? And I know you've been very active because I've been following you and all the things you've been doing, but I'd very much like to hear your assessment and your articulation of the MAS's response. Well, Tim, as you know very well, globally, we are facing a health crisis and a consequent economic crisis. And it's important to realize both dimensions to this. So a comprehensive policy response needs to address both challenges jointly. Singapore's strategy has centered on containing the pandemic, of course, and of course, dealing with economic slowdown. And on the healthcare front, and this is very critical, it's a strategy based on careful testing, very rigorous contact tracing, and quick isolation of concerned cases. The government has been providing very detailed daily updates to keep the public informed and prepared and safe. We've had a few waves of infection, and since 7th of April, Singapore has been in a partial lockdown. We call it a circuit breaker here. Basically, all non-critical services have been suspended. Most people are working from home, can only leave home for very specified purposes. Really, we want to bring down the number of community transmissions to single digits, and They've pretty much achieved that local transmission rate, community transmission is in single digits. The reason why I'm emphasizing this is because I think whenever we talk about the economics, it is going to be dictated primarily, I think, by the trajectory of COVID-19. What everyone is doing on the health front matters a great deal for economic outcomes. So now, like most others, we are preparing to restart economic social activity from 2nd June, that's next week. But we're going to do it very progressively and at a rather calibrated, gradual manner. The advice is still, if you can work from home, continue to do so. But we're going to relax most of the prohibitions on economic activities to get the economy restarted. Naturally, when you have a situation like this, this a severe blow to the economy. We're hit both by a supply and a demand shock. Singapore is facing the um, most severe recession in our history. GDP growth this year is forecast at minus 7 to minus 4%. So the focus of macroeconomic policy response is not so much to stimulate headline GDP growth per se. That's not going to be possible because both supply and demand severely impaired globally. Border controls, restrictions on people movement. So it is actually meant to reduce activity until you can reduce the infection rate. So almost by definition, you're not going to get much production 
or economic activities. The key focus is not so much the GDP growth rate, but to support businesses, support workers, support households, sustain them through this period, lay the foundations for economic recovery, and then emerge stronger from the crisis. So quite appropriately, the centerpiece of the response has been fiscal policy, and the government has implemented four packages in as many months. And it's a slew of fiscal measures, which would be familiar to, I think, many people. It's broadly similar to what many others have been doing, wage subsidies for businesses, cash transfers for households, and also all kinds of training and other support for capability building. The total fiscal spending has accumulated to about 20% of GDP. So that's, I think, one of the highest in the world. Thankfully, we have a healthy stock of reserves, which we've been able to use. So that's been helpful. Then coming to MAS, so I think uh, our role is mostly supportive fiscal policy in three distinct ways. First, uh, easing monetary policy in line with the slowdown in the economy. Second, ensuring a smooth functioning of the funding market. And third, facilitating the flow of credit to the real economy. On the monetary policy front, I think as you would know and uh, others might be familiar as well, in Singapore, monetary policy is centered on managing the exchange rate of the Singapore dollar against the trade-weighted basket of currencies. So we eased, basically the MAS eased the rate of appreciation of the Singapore dollar to 0%, starting at a lower prevailing level of the exchange rate in March. So the exchange rate is at a lower level and is being kept stable. So this is a commodative and supportive policy stance. For us, ensuring the smooth functioning of the short-term funding markets has been a priority. So far, market functioning has remained intact, been able to provide liquidity. Now, globally, liquidity is fetching a higher price, understandably, but luckily, tightness has abated somewhat, and the situation is the same in Singapore. We are deliberately leaving more liquidity in the banking system to moderate higher funding costs. We've taken particularly focused steps to ensure U.S. dollar liquidity. Funding is available for credit to flow to businesses and individuals in both Singapore and in the region. I think for those in the U.S., this would be taken for granted. But for most of the rest of the world, we not only need domestic currency liquidity, we also need U.S. dollar liquidity. In fact, U.S. dollar activity has been growing in the region over the past decade. So there's great demand for this. And in March, I think everyone had a scare with dollar funding shortages. Thankfully, the Fed has checked in very decisively, I must say, and in a very timely fashion and helped to stabilize the situation both in the U.S. and indirectly through the swap agreement in much of the rest of the world. For Singapore as a regional financial center, we have a responsibility to ensure dollar funding conditions in the region do not come under significant pressure. So with the support of the swap line with the New York Fed, we set up a $60 billion U.S. dollars facility to support U.S. dollar lending to businesses, both in Singapore and in the region. The third thing that we've done is to work closely with our financial institutions to ensure credit support to businesses and households. Now, like most regulators, we don't have powers to direct banks to lend or set conditions. And mere exhortations don't work, as we've seen in some other jurisdictions. So what we did was sit down with the banks and work out a baseline industry support level that all of us would sign up to. And then individual banks will, of course, if they want to give more relief, they're free to do so. But as an industry, we agreed. So the two areas we focused on was individuals and small and medium businesses. So for individuals, we worked with the bank to provide a moratorium 
till the end of the year for repayments of housing loans, of car loans, student loans. And for SMEs, if the security is good, then principal repayment is deferred. Banks also agreed to convert expensive credit card loans to cheaper term loans. We want to make sure that during this period, we do not build up excessive debt. Or if we do build up debt, that the interest cost is kept low so that we don't have a huge problem next year. The government is sharing the risk on loans to SMEs to the tune of 90% risk share. And then the MAS has launched a facility to lend to banks at 0.1% for a tenure of two years. And this is meant for them to lend on lend to small and medium enterprises. So the formula is very simple. Government underwrites most of the risk of lending. The central bank provides zero-cost funding, and the banks decide who to lend to and how much to lend based on their credit assessment. So each party is doing what it is best at. So that package has been in place, and take-up has been quite good. Obviously comprehensive, as I would have expected. Two follow-up questions. With respect to the funding market, were there surprises in terms of stress in corporate bonds or money markets or other short-term instruments that you hadn't stressed before? And two, what about regional cooperation? Your banks there obviously operate regionally. Your economy is integrated regionally. How do you cooperate with your counterparts you know, to the north, south, east, and west? Yeah. The corporate bond market saw some severe stresses in March across the region. We were also taken aback by the degree of stress that we saw globally in financial markets during those two weeks in March, including in the United States. I remember some of my traders telling me, you know, in their 30 years watching markets, they've never seen the U.S. Treasury market, for instance, seeing this kind of tightness where trading volumes just, you just can't trade. That was worrying. And um, the corporate bond market, especially the commercial paper market, for businesses in Singapore and in the region use the commercial paper market quite actively for dollar funding. And there was a period when this was under heavy stress. This was not something that we saw even during the global financial crisis. So the tightness was real. We were dusting off our contingency plans for a financial crisis. But like I said earlier, thankfully, the Fed stepped in very strongly. And I think has put in place measures that went even beyond what we saw at the global financial crisis. Very creative, new facilities, and that helped to stabilize. And with the swap line that were extended to an additional nine countries, of which Singapore is one, we quite quickly restored the situation. At the same time, we were seeing capital outflows from some of our regional economies, and that also abated. So there's a short period of great anxiety and stress for about two to three weeks, but quickly that came under control in most of the region. On regional, how we are working together, we have had a couple of calls among the central banks in the region, mostly sharing experiences, not limited to just the economic outlook, but also our policy responses, asking each other, how do you deal with this kind of issue, really trying to learn from one another. Much of what I described earlier on in terms of our own responses benefited just by studying what other countries are doing and putting together what makes sense for us. So there was quite a lot of mutual exchange of ideas on policy measures and also alerting one another to some of the risks that may be building up. Even as we try to fight the crisis, we need to be sure that we do not build up huge problems for the future. We're also checking with one another on those issues. Well, the debt level that you mentioned, and you're taking a responsible approach to debt accumulation. You saw the OECD's line-grabbing statistics of $17 trillion increase in debt Budget deficit in the U.S. is 6% of GDP. So it is an issue that we're all going to be facing, especially in the emerging markets. As you know, we follow EM debt stresses pretty closely. 
And we have seen in this cycle a big increase in corporate debt among EMs and SOEs, the state-owned enterprises. So I assume that's something that you're watching in the region as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. In fact, the accumulation of debt is probably going to be the number one aftermath of the COVID pandemic. And we're going to have to deal with it, you know, from 2021 onwards. And you're quite right. The buildup of debt is going to have multiple effects. One of the risks we are quite concerned about is renewed capital outflows from emerging market economies. They remain vulnerable. There's a round of secondary waves of infections, which is why I keep coming back to, you know, when we talk about economics, we've got to talk about the pandemic. I think the market expectations that there's going to be a recovery in the second half of this year, and then uh, we'll all gradually get out of this over the course of 2021, is going to be severely tested. Given how highly infectious COVID-19 is, I think reopening, it will be almost inevitable. There will be renewed outbreaks and secondary waves of infection. How we deal with these secondary waves is going to matter a great deal. Different countries will respond differently and they have different capacities. So there's a mismatch between market expectations and how the economies kind of come out of this because there's going to be setbacks. It's going to be a fit and start kind of uh, recovery. That could trigger renewed capital outflows from emerging economies because there'll be a renewed rush into liquid and safe assets. And uh, that's never uh, a, a good uh, good scenario for, for emerging markets, uh, tighter financial conditions. Uh, and then there'll be corporate refinancing risks. Um, Tim, you mentioned the um, corporate debt issue. That We went into the crisis with uh, one strong card and one weak card. The strong card is that globally, the banks are in great shape, most of them, uh, U.S. banks, U.K. banks, Asian banks generally, uh, very strong capital and liquidity buffers. So that's our strong card. The weak card is that um, corporate debt was high even before COVID. And now corporate debt is building up uh, many parts of the world. So if the COVID-19 situation is not contained, uh, that debt is going to continue to grow and uh, credit risks will start to mount. Once uh, all these deferments and forbearance is over, because you only can do so much, um, then you're going to have uh, uh, more uh, corporate distress. Um, and um, I think that is going to be a, a, a big problem we have to deal with. A third risk is related to what I just said. You're going to see an increased deterioration in credit quality. There's going to be a rating downgrade. Again, for now, there's a little bit of forbearance, I think, but uh, not for long. I think once the rating agency starts to downgrade bonds and corporate loans, you're going to see an exacerbation of existing stresses. This is especially the case in the U.S. and Europe, where we have many uh, corporate bonds at the borderline between investment grade and below. So uh, all these triple B-rated bonds, if they cross that threshold, we could have fire sales, massive outflows, and uh, sell-offs, and this could exacerbate our liquidity risks. So corporate downgrades are something we're looking at carefully, which is why I think it's important that emergency measures that all governments and central banks have taken cannot be carried on for too long, and we need an exit strategy uh, before these, this debt accumulates to a point where we you know, have to deal with it for years after. I completely agree. I think it will be one of the great challenges for all of us in the coming years. 
you know, as you were talking, I was reminded of a speech you gave at the San Francisco Fed a couple of years ago, where you were positioning yourself maybe a decade in the future, looking back on the crises that were to come. Uh, and I don't think you had a pandemic as part of your repertoire of crises. But in some ways, it was really prescient of the kinds of crises we need to think through over the coming months and years. So kudos to you. And I'll have to go back and reread that excellent speech. I can't let you get away without obviously talking about technology and innovation. Singapore is an innovation hub, not only for the region, but globally. And since we're all working from home and we're learning to function in a decentralized fashion, you have been a leader on data localization. You've signed a number of MOUs on connectivity with Australia and the U.S. How are you thinking about data flows and connectivity given this crisis? Very good point you're making that, Tim. In many ways, the crisis is accelerating quite considerably trends that are already underway. And one of the trends that was already underway was the digital connectivity. To think about connectivity between countries in broader terms than the usual physical transport, logistics kinds of links, to also think about digital connectivity, data connectivity. We're very pleased that we hit the ground running this year with agreements with both the U.S. Treasury, that's the statement of intent, on data connectivity for financial services, and of course, the uh, full-fledged digital economy agreement with Australia in March. This, I think, if the world gets its act together, will be the name of the game. It's not just free trade agreements, it's digital economy agreements, which has a whole range of provisions on how we can make the flow of data seamless across jurisdictions, but also in a safe manner, secure from cyber threats, and also protecting confidentiality. So I think the agreements with the U.S. and Australia are a good start. Uh, we want to build on this momentum. I think today everyone's preoccupied with fighting the fire of the crisis, but we want to continue to press on this agenda in other bilateral settings and uh, also in the multilateral setting. I think when you have a string of bilateral agreements of this nature, it becomes easier to stitch them together into something that's more plurilateral. And I think financial institutions especially will find this uh, important because most financial institutions now have cross-border operations, and you need to analyze financial data consolidated across portfolios in different jurisdictions so that you can have effective risk management. And restrictions on data flows across borders is a severe limitation. And COVID-19 has now forced us to work remotely, dealing with data across multiple jurisdictions and information flows. So I think this is really going to underscore the importance of data connectivity. So it's quite critical that organizations like the G20, the Financial Stability Board, even the WTO, because this is a new dimension of trade, data connectivity and digital connectivity, how to make our systems interoperable. So there are discussions with the BIS on cross-border payments, for instance, uh, cross-border invoicing, how do you establish identity in a safe manner, in a trusted manner across jurisdictions. So there are lots of stuff we need to think hard about on the data and digital front, which COVID-19 has just brought to the forefront. So I'm quite hopeful that we will make progress on this front once people's minds shift towards the post-COVID world and what we need to do to prepare for it. And given the environment that you just described, might that give an advantage to fintechs, the new entrants, or the platform companies the, and financials that are more technology savvy or more adept in working in a data-driven environment, maybe have a cost structure that's more oriented toward that environment? Yes, I think they, they do have some inherent advantages. I don't feel confident making a prediction that they are definitely going to do better in this. I think many of the global banks are also getting their act together on this front. 
several trends coming together. Remote working, cross-border payments, and uh, invoicing. You're seeing e-commerce taking off in a big way. And all of this requires a certain interoperability of systems across borders and jurisdictions. They also require a certain seamlessness in how these different parts fit together. So I think uh, the platform companies do have an advantage because they do bring together various kinds of services. But I don't think they have a monopoly on this because I think platforms can also be built for as a public good, which is one of the things that we're trying to do with respect to trade finance. There are about 30 different players in a trade transaction, trade forwarders, importers, exporters, insurers, banks, customs, uh, shipping authorities, and so on. And um, tremendous amount of paperwork, uh, duplication, and yet uh, some fraud. And there is great scope to digitalize these transactions, put them on a common platform, and private sector players can come in with value-adding services that ride on these platforms. So I think you're going to see also a democratization of these platforms, uh, public utilities of sorts or public-private partnerships at a much lower cost, and then service providers coming in to connect to these platforms to provide solutions that may be bespoke or customized to various users on these platforms. That's one way the world might evolve. The private platform companies who have kind of had a monopoly may not be able to sustain those advantages. And I think another important development is the idea of reciprocity, that if you are exploiting data from a source, you should put your own data on the table. So I think with respect to things like open banking, for instance, that's the position we're taking. Non-bank players can come in to provide financial services, but they need to put their own data into the common utility so that banks can also access other non-bank data in order to provide comprehensive solutions. So I think there will be very interesting developments on this front, which is why I hesitate to make any strong prediction. But these will be very interesting things to watch and try to shape for the better for the future. Well, fortunately, Ravi, you have incredibly talented bankers in Singapore and the institutions that are technology leaders. But you've also created an environment where you want competition from a variety of different sources so that ultimately consumers benefit from the best technology and, and the best business model. And I applaud that. I think that's the way to create the right environment. You know, unfortunately, I've run out of time. It seems like we just got started. I want to thank you again for taking your morning and spending it with me. I really look forward to being able to see you again in person. I don't know when that's going to be, but uh, I look forward to that and having an opportunity to speak longer and you know, in each other's presence about all these issues. And again, I want to thank you for, for spending time with us today. Tim, it was a real pleasure to catch up again, to hear you and to reconnect. And I do look forward to uh, catching up again at future settings, be it in person or channels like these. All the best to all your members. Wish them the best during this period. I think banks can be part of the solution this time. And many of them have been doing good work. And I commend all your members for the great work they're doing. And also to you, Tim, and your colleagues. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robbie. Take care of yourself. Be healthy. Be safe. See you soon. Special thanks to Managing Director Menon of the Monetary Authority of Singapore for speaking with Tim for this podcast. One thing from the conversation that I wanted to circle back on before we close is the speech Tim mentioned from San Francisco. The full title of the speech is Financial Regulation, 20 Years After the Global Financial Crisis. It was a keynote address by Mr. Ravi Menon at the Symposium on Asian Banking and Finance at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco in June of 2018. In it, Managing Director Menon sets the scene. The year is 2028, and the world has just come off two financial crises in the last 20 years. Obviously, the global financial crisis in 07-08, 
but he also mentions the global cyber crisis of 2023. The rest of the speech is a fascinating exploration of the possible risks the global economy faces over the next decade. I encourage you to give it a read. That's all for this week. A thanks once again for Tim Adams for participating in these last two episodes. A thanks to our producer here at the IIF, Kate Sammer. And once again, I'm your host, Dylan Riddle. We'll see you next time. Thanks.